look at the covenants this morning. I have uploaded multiple documents. Uh, I've repasted a couple items from last week that were um, John Wallen's on the covenant. I've repasted or relinked that into the fourth week as well. So a lot of covenant-related uploads from this week. I have one handout I'm going to give you in print today. It's also uploaded on the handouts link. So if you want to take one of these and pass them around. The page that's going around is the major covenants in the Old Testament. It's from the NASB Study Bible, which is the same as what's also in all of the Zondervan Study Bibles, basically. NIV Study Bible, the New Background Cultural Study Bible. Speaking of which, when they come out with new study Bibles and reference resources, sometimes they'll give uh, PDF samples. And uh, I have uploaded the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible sample, which includes Genesis and uh, Matthew. And the reason is because there's a lot of background material in that for Genesis for you, including the same charts that you're getting. They've just updated them and put it in color. And there's some other charts related to what we're talking about, the covenants, etc. So you can peruse that. Also, you, you're not required to look at every single upload that I, I give you. I'll, I'll make reference to the ones I think are probably the most important. But if you decide to do a paper on, for instance, covenants, I'll upload quite a bit of stuff that will at least get you started. Uh, and then you can go from there. So I'm a, I'm a kind of a research guy, so I'm, I'm usually over skill rather than under skill on that. You see that? Yeah. That's me. So, all right, so let's get a, get a definition first off for our covenants. It won't work if you don't put the USB in, will it? All right, so here's a definition for us. The image of covenant or agreement is the primary way in which the Bible portrays the relationship between God and his people and to a lesser extent to the human race in general. So covenants have to do with deals, agreements, promises. That's what we're dealing with here. All right. That's coming out of uh, Leland Reichen. He edited an article um, in the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. Additionally, Walt Kaiser says, an agreement involving two parties in scripture is between God and mankind between mortals or between nations, and maybe either conditional or unconditional covenant. And so we're going to see that. Theologically speaking, that's where some of the, the disagreements take place between different uh, groups of Christians, if you will, or different theological uh, systems within Christianity, whether these covenants are unconditional or conditional, specifically related to Abraham, which we'll discuss that in, in just a few minutes. So the bottom line without being overly technical, is that we're talking about making a deal. Which we mentioned last week, cut a deal, right? That's where the phrase comes from. So you have a handout that lists the major covenants. I had to split it to put it on the screen, which you probably still can't really read from back there. But the major covenants in the Old Testament. And you can see, looking down the left side, you have the covenant, the Noahic covenant, then it's got Abrahamic, and it's got parts one and two, and then a number two, 
and then the covenant of Sinai and his own Phineas, David, and the new covenant. The references are there for you. The type, which we'll talk about in just a moment, who the participants are, and the description of them. Now, down at the bottom of the page, list three different types of covenants or treaties from the ancient Near East and how that they are related. And there's a little bit of understanding needed of that to tie into the chart. Because as you see, if you look, for instance, at the Abrahamic covenant number one, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, it says a royal grant covenant. And we're like, well, what in the world is that? So if you look at the bottom, there's a, a brief paragraph. A king's grant of land or some other benefit to a loyal servant for faithful or exceptional service. The grant was normally perpetual and unconditional, but he, um, the servant's heirs benefited from it only as they continued their father's loyalty and service. So, it's unconditional in the sense that God, God in our case, scripture, it would be God, but in the ancient Near East, it would be a king or whoever, gives them the land. But if they're continually disobedient, he can kick them out of the land. So if you have tracked with the story in the Bible thus far, you already know that without even having to peg all these scenarios, and I'm going to mention in a second, as treaties, agreements, or covenants, you already know that God has repeatedly kicked people out of the land. It happened in Genesis with uh, Adam and Eve. Um, it happened beyond that. It lost them and moved out of the land. Uh, repeatedly, they're, they're moved out. Babel, they're moved east again. And so, when we get to Genesis 12 with Abraham, which Genesis 12, 1 through 3, is, is a, a key passage for scripture. The, the rest of scripture kind of unfolds from these promises that are that appear in the Abrahamic covenant. And then the rest of the ones on your chart are up here as well on the screen. So this is just an exact duplication of the handout that I gave you. So let's look at uh, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. And then after that, we will compare some ancient Near East treaties. I have some examples of some texts from the ancient Near East in these treaties. So if you look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, your father's home, to the land that I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who treat you with contempt or curse those who curse you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so the first thing is that there's three short clauses addressed to Abram. Okay? I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. And I'll make your name great. Now, if you're following the narrative of Scripture so far, you know that there's some parallels to these in the past. For instance, at the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis 11, what were the people trying to do? Make a what for themselves? A name for themselves. And so they're, they're trying to make a name for themselves. Here, God's telling Abraham, I'll make your name great. Okay? They were also trying to make um, their city great, and, and God is going to make Abraham into a great nation. Continues, <coughs> and he says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. So, the question Kaiser uh, posits here is, to whom was Abraham to be a blessing, and how was Abraham to be a blessing? 
so they, those questions appear to be answered in these next few clauses. The Lord added two more promises in Genesis 12 3, again using these uh, Hebrew supportative forms of the verb. That's the same image that I put up last week. This image of, of the cutting ceremony that we talked about has to do with the ancient Near East, and it comes from that time period and what they were doing. And so when you look at Genesis 12, if you want any additional notes or indications, that the purpose, which was on the first slide, okay, so this, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to bless you and I'll exalt your name. The result is so that you will be a blessing. And then the next two, again, are these purpose clauses. I will bless those blessing you. I will curse those cursing you. The result is so that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So if you look at both of these result aspects, it's about this blessing aspect. So the whole rest of the story of Scripture is how God is going to work this out, and this is going to flow out from Abraham and the descendants thereof. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's the storyline. So when you get to everything else that's going on, your questions are really, how, how is this causing a problem for the covenant? Like, what's in the way here? And so when you look at the rest of the, the narrative in Genesis, for instance, so you have the Joseph narrative in, in Genesis 37 through 50. And most of the time people uh, look at, teach, or preach Joseph about his morality and how much integrity he had and how he's a great example for our young men today and all this. And there's a lot of truth in all that, but that's really not the primary point. In the middle of that, you've got Genesis 38 with Judah and Tamar. And a lot of people struggle with, why is that in here? What's going on here? What, what's going on is that we're dealing with the land, the seed, and the blessing. And who's going to get it? And so there's 12 sons. Well, who, who's going to get the blessing? And through whom is this promise going to continue? Because one of the 12 has to get picked, right? And so you got you got Abraham. You got Isaac, you got Jacob, he becomes Israel, who then has the 12 sons, right? I'm not going to put all 12, but you have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, you got Joseph, you got Benjamin, Okay. In the storyline, okay, Reuben goes and sleeps with one of his father's women, basically usurping and trying to take over the family. That kind of gets him kicked out. You can kind of read the rest of the narrative as Reuben attempting to get back his blessing. So he wants to throw Joseph in the pit and then bring Joseph back to his father, quite possibly so that he can get back on his dad's good side. Of course, none of that works out. Simeon and Levi, over their sister's rape, go and, t and take out basically a whole village, including hamstringing oxen, etc. If you look at the end of Genesis, they are cursed for this because they have such anger. Alright? So, that's those two. That leaves Judah. Remember, we're looking at who is the promise going to flow through? Who's going to inherit the promise? And, and we already see that with, with Jacob, Jacob's brother was Esau, and there was a reversal of who got it there. Esau being the oldest, all right, and the youngest 
inherited. Okay, the oldest is supposed to get the double portion. So if Reuben's out, Simeon's out, Levi's out, number four man is Judah. Now we get a lot of focus on Joseph. Chapters 37 to 50 is usually called the Joseph narrative. But chapter 38 is about Judah and Tamar, through whom comes Perez, through whom eventually comes Jesus. So Joseph is used by God to do a couple of things. He's used to get the family into Egypt because of a famine. So that begs the question, why is there a famine? This is actually going to connect. I didn't originally plan for this to look this way, but this is actually going to connect with our next topic of the Canaanites. So what is the problem with what is currently going on? Well, Reuben... <coughs> had married a Canaanite. He wasn't the first one. Esau had married a Canaanite. Okay, their parents didn't like this because they're not allowed to marry the Canaanites. They're not supposed to intermix them. The Canaanites are going to be driven out of the land. They've already been told this up front. But the time isn't ready yet because their, their crimes, their sin, hasn't reached the point of no return, so to speak. And so the famine comes Joseph is now in Egypt, which is going to mean he becomes the deliverer for the family. All right? Remember, we're, we're not anywhere near becoming um, a nation yet, which God promised, right? He said, you're going to become a great nation. Your, your descendants are going to be as many as the stars in the sky or the, or the sand on the seashore. Well, we're not there yet. In fact, by the time they go into Egypt, there's only 70 of them. Even 70, I mean, that's, that's not enough for a nation, right? But how many are there by the time they leave Egypt in Exodus? couple million. Okay? Two million, give or take, if you take the conservative viewpoint on it. So they go from 70 to 2 million in 400 and some odd years. So, that's the role in the narrative story, okay, of Joseph. Well, what about Judah? Okay. Judah is a guy that needs, needs saving. I mean, they all do. Okay? But remember, SPSU, we're, we're picking characters here to showcase what God's going to do. So, Judah marries, and then he's got three sons. Ur, Onan, and uh, Shelah. So, the Bible doesn't tell us much about these boys. They're wicked. Ur was wicked. God killed him. I mean, that's all we're told. Um, so, Onan is supposed to perform the Leverite marriage duties, which means you go in, and he's supposed to uh, sleep with Tamar, and the son born is not his. So we're back to we're back to birthright issues and blessings again. Okay, Ur was firstborn. So he should receive a double portion of Judah's inheritance, right? Except except he's dead, so he's got no kids. So Onan is supposed to give a son to Tamar, but that son is not going to be Onan's. It's going to be Ur's. So that it continues his line, his line doesn't die, and the, the portion of inheritance, blessing, land, etc., that should go through this line will continue. Well, guess what? He refuses to do so. Let me, let me 
he doesn't want that to happen. So again, you see the, this evil aspect <coughs> in there. Now, in our mind, we're like, what are you talking about? I mean, he shouldn't even be in the room with her to begin with. But you, you got to go back to what's going on in, in that, con- that country, that culture, that context. <coughs> um, so God kills him. That leaves Sheila. Well, at this point, Judah's superstitious and thinks that Tamar's got to be the problem, and all his boys are dying. And so he's not about to let his last and third boy marry her. Well, in time, his wife dies. <coughs> and then it says he's going... It's, uh, let me see what the text says here. Right here. Page 38. There's page 38. It says, um, at that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near a Judahite named Hira. So another thing you can see is he becomes close friends with the Canaanites. Okay, He's moving in with them, basically. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as his wife and slept her. So he's marrying in with the Canaanite. His good friend Hira, which shows up three different times, I think it is, in this chapter, um, is, is a Canaanite. We can continue on down. And it says, verse 12, after a long time, Judah's wife dies. When Judah finished mourning, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went up to Timnah to the sheep shearer. Okay, this is party time. He's done mourning. Sheep shearing is, is like party time. So it's festive, it's, it's happy, it's joyous, it's, it's a party. And so on his way to this party, Tamar hears about this, and she dresses up like a prostitute. Now, again, we, we look at this through our 21st century eyes, and we're like, this is all messed up. The wrong person is getting approval from the story. And uh, Judah, his wife's dead, he's done mourning, it's party time, and he sees a woman. Hmm. He wants her. So he has her. He doesn't realize who she is. She's his friend. Now, when you understand the barren wife motif in Genesis on top of all this, the fact that he sleeps with her once and she's pregnant, like there's something else going on here, you know? So, several verses later, he finds out she's pregnant, and what's he want done? He wants her killed. He wants her burned. And then she says, well, the man who got me pregnant is the one whom this stuff belongs to. He didn't have a Canaanite, so he left his, basically, the equivalent of his daughter's life in his Jebusite, Judah. And, uh, and then, this is the turning point. In verse number 22, Judah recognized them, and he said, she is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son Shua, and did not make her into my wife. Again, she's righteous, I'm not. This is the humbling of Judah. When Judah begins to realize <coughs> that his ways have not been what, what God has wanted him to. You will then see, as you read the rest of this, that you get into the time when they are in in Egypt, and he's willing to stand in the gap, and he's willing to be a substitute in prison for his brothers. Okay, So there's a turning point in, in Judah's life, and um, a lot of scholars think that this is where it is. And why does that matter? We're back to the line. Because this is the line that Judah comes to. See, everyone always focuses on, on Joseph, but we all know Jesus doesn't come to the line of Joseph. He comes to the line of Judah. And that's chapter 38. Without chapter 38, 
in this story, we, we would have no connection with Jesus in the line of Judah. And so that's why that's in there. So what does all that have to do with the covenant? Well, what did God promise? He promised the land, the seed, and this blessing. There's got to be this nation to come out of this. So they all end up down here in Egypt finally at the, um, at the end of the book. So 70 of them come down into Egypt, and 2 million, give or take, are going to leave Egypt. That'll be next week that we'll probably talk about that. But this is what God's doing through his covenant. It's the sovereignty of God working behind the scenes. Just like um, it's the sovereignty of God and God's choice to call Abraham out of Ur. Abraham is just going about his business, right? And God shows up. It's the sovereignty of God to call Moses from the burning bush. So this is God working his plan out to accomplish what he said he was going to accomplish all along. Does that all make sense so far? Yeah? We good? Alright, so in the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant cutting ceremony. So there's several aspects to the ancient Near East and the suzerain treaties. So the land grant is kind of self-explanatory. It's about giving land. Alright, the king said, I'm giving you land. That's what God did to, to Abraham. He said, I'm giving you land. The suzerain vassal treaty is slightly different. The suzerain is a king. A vassal is a servant. So if you were a king, all right, and you came in and you took over my land area, all right, then I'm now your vassal. I'm your servant. So suzerain vassal treaty simply means that the king and the conquered slaves are servants. There's generally, depends on who you read, five or six aspects to these treaties that they would write. The first is the preamble. Then the historical prologue, the stipulations, the deposit and the reading of the covenant, the witnesses, the curses, and the blessings. Let me just give you a couple of comments on those. Of what they kind of look like. And then we'll, we'll look at what they actually are. So, in the... So in the preamble, what you're going to find is basically that is going to uh, be the official title of the Hittite king and his suzerain vassal treaty. So you're looking for the name of the king in the beginning of this treaty. The historical prologue is going to recount the past deeds that the suzerain, the king, and maybe his predecessor, have done his good deeds to the vassal. So how have we been good to you, in other words? establish the authority that they're claiming in the treaty. So it's, hey, I'm the king, and here's how good I've been to you. The next part is the stipulations or the terms. This is the terms of it. This is what I'm going to do. This is what you're going to do. All right? This is the agreement part. The fourth is the um, requirement that the document be deposited in the temple, usually of a major deity, um, and read at regular intervals. So you don't just file it away in your desk drawer. Put it in a safety deposit box. They're supposed to reread this on a regular uh, occurrence. So it could be annually, etc. We know that in scripture, I'm jumping ahead of myself with the comparison here, but that they would read the law annually together. I think it was 
at the Feast of um, Tabernacles. And then you have the witnesses, okay? This could include the gods of the Hittite pantheon and other people, and the blessings and curses, all right? Now, when you look at ancient Near East treaties and covenants, sometimes they, they reverse some of these orders or they could leave out part, but generally speaking, this is what you find in them. The treaties have mostly been Hittite that have been found. So if we recall our geography map, Sumer, Dibla, and the Akkadians, um, they have found no treaties. So they haven't found any treaties from that area. That's the way we live in Mesopotamia area. Remember Sumer and Ur, it's all over there together. Uh, most of the copies of treaties they found are from the Hittites. From the 14 to 1200s BC, which fits right in with the time period of Moses. There's, um, so that's where most of them are. Syria, um, there's a couple found, and Assyria also, but most of them Hittite. All right, so if you want to remember something, uh, you want to remember Hittite is where most of them come from. All right, now. Let's look at an example, all right? So this is an example of an ancient tree. It says, these are the words of Mercellus, the great king, king of the Hittites, the valiant. So that's the preamble. That's telling us uh, who it is, who, who this king is, all right? Then the next part is the historical prologue. When your father died, I did not drop you. Since your father mentioned your name to me with great praise, I sought after you. To be sure, you were sick and ailing, but I still let you replace your father and accepted your brothers, your sisters, and your land in oath for you. So he's saying how good he's been to them. So I've been very good to you, right? I, I could have taken you out, but I didn't. In the stipulations, you shall remain loyal to me. Well, why? Because I've been so good to you. You know, I could have killed you. The Hittite king, the Hittite land, and my sons and grandsons forever. The tribute imposed upon your grandfather and your father, 300 shekels of high-quality gold, you will also present to me. Do not turn your eyes to anyone else. Your fathers presented tribute to Egypt, but you shall never do that. When he says don't turn your eyes to anyone else, he's saying, listen, this tribute, that's like a tax. All right? So when you take over another country, you impose a tribute or a tax on them, and they pay that, usually annually or, or whatever the king de demands. Um, and it can be as much as he says. And if you don't do that or stop doing that, we have examples of this in Scripture. The Israelites pay tribute, and then they would stop until the Assyrians would come. And they're going to reattack, or they're going to demolish, they're going to demand the payment, etc. So he says, uh, don't turn to anybody else. He's basically saying, don't think that you can go get a better deal with somebody else, and they're going to protect you. Like, we're, we're the boss around here, so pay us, and everything will stay good. That's what he's saying. The provision for the deposit in the temple and the periodic public reading. And then it says, a duplicate of this document has been deposited before the god Tasu. At regular intervals, they shall read it in the presence of the king and in the presence of the sons of the country. So they're supposed to regularly read this to remind everybody who's the boss and to behave. And then in the list of gods as witnesses, the sun god of heaven, the sun goddess of Arena, 
Ishtar, the gods, the goddesses of the Hittites, the gods and goddesses of the Amorites, all the olden gods, the mountains, the rivers, the heaven and the earth, the winds, the clouds, let these be witnesses to this treaty and to the oath. And so we call in these witnesses that everybody's agreed, we've, we've all seen this, we, we agree on what's going to happen. Now, in the curses, oops, I forgot one more, the curses and the blessings, should uh, Dupi, I guess, Pesu, fail to honor this treaty, may these gods of the oath destroy, okay, Dupi, Pesu, together with his wife, his son, his grandson, his house, his land, and everything he owns. But if he honors the treaty inscribed on the tablet, may these gods protect him together with his wife, his son, his grandson, his house, and his country. So that's the blessing and curse. You obey is good. You, you disobey, you're cursed, right? So. <clears throat> now, in the Bible, there is quite a bit of scholarly argument for the fact that the entire book of Deuteronomy is structured around the suzerain vassal treaties. And so, a lot of times Deuteronomy is called the second law. I think that's kind of a misgiving. I don't really prefer that. Uh, it is a renewal of the covenant. Um, and even the word law sends kind of the wrong connotation in our culture. Um, it's more of the teachings, the, the Torah, the teachings, the instructions that is supposed to be passed on down. But it is structured like a suzerain vassal treaty. And so you can see from, from this chart here, if you, if you Google this or do a little research on it, you'll find a little bit of discrepancies with uh, you know, verses or where one part starts. Or, for instance, on this chart here, which I think I got from Stevenson, uh, he just has stipulations, but there's, there's actually some general stipulations and then specific stipulations. But if you look at it, you'll see the aspects that we just talked about. So in the beginning, the preamble, he talks about the remembrances of the past. What has God done in the past? Everything from Sinai to Kadesh, Kadesh to Moab. Don't forget the covenant. Don't forget the promise that we have with you. I've been good to you. The historical prologue, okay, rehearsal of the journey. The stipulations, which includes the Ten Commandments, other commands, um, this is what you are supposed to do. This is how you fulfill your part of the, the bargain, if you will. And then the blessings and the curses and the secession. So this fits in with what we talked about before with John Walton's book about ancient Near Eastern uh, context and cultures. And why would they use something like this? Does that, does that bother anybody that they would use a structure just like... Um, way that New Testament uh, letters are written the way they are. They're mostly following the, the templates of the time period. So one of the things we have to you know, learn to, to recognize, I guess, and accept is that when God reveals himself in, in a time and a place, he, he's going to do it in a way that those people can understand. And so he's going to use their, their culture and their conventions. Additionally, 
in Exodus and in Joshua, there are arguments. There's also arguments made for the book of Hosea to follow a covenant treaty uh, format. And so if this is something that you are interested in, you can, you can delve more into this. But the different aspects, um, Exodus and Leviticus are, are put together here in this particular example. But you have the same parts, the preamble, historical prologue, general and specific stipulations, deposit, periodic readings, witness, curse, and blessings. And so you see this in multiple places throughout Scripture. There's one other um, example of the use of an ancient Near Eastern text. This should have been up previously, but when it comes to the cutting ceremony that we were talking about, uh, this is a text from uh, Ashur Nirari of Assyria and his uh, another ruler from Syria. He says, the spring lamb has been brought from its fold, not for sacrifice, not for a banquet, not for a purchase, not for divination, a sick man not to be slaughtered, brackets, so we're missing some, some text from a, from a tablet. It's been brought to sanction the treaty, okay? So he's bringing this animal in for part of the treaty, all right? And then look here. He says, the head is not the head of a lamb. It's the head of Matilu. It is the head of his sons, his officials, and the people of his land. If Matilu sins against the treaty, so may, just as the head of the spring lamb is torn off and its knuckle placed in its mouth, so the head of Matilu be torn off in his sons. The shoulder is not the shoulder of a lamb, it's the shoulder of... In other words, it is representing me. And what we talked about last week is if I were to violate, let what happened to this happen to me. So that's just one example of an ancient Near Eastern text that demonstrates the concept that we're talking about. is listed there for you. So Genesis 12 covenant listed as a royal grant, therefore unconditional. And then in Genesis 17, it's as a, a suzerain vassal, and so it's conditional. Now, there is one aspect that was conditional when God came to Abraham. He did have to do what? Treatment, maybe I left it home, is a book by Gentry, G 
G-E-N-T-R-Y. And it is um, what's it called? Something covenant. Kingdom Tree Covenant. So, Kingdom Tree Covenant by Peter Gentry, G E N T R Y, is, to my knowledge, uh, the most detailed uh, treatment of these covenants throughout the Bible. Now, if money is no option for you, <laughs> Hannah's Kitchen has a three volume series that I believe translates and comments on every single ancient Near East treaty text they've ever found. person who is a forerunner in this field relating to the covenant is Meredith Klein. Um, Meredith Klein was an Old Testament scholar and he has, he has worked on uh, Exodus, Exodus, Deuteronomy, etc. And his book is called uh, The Treaty of the Great King. That's one of the first books that was really written laying out this idea of the Hebrewist relationship to the scriptures, of course. So those are some of your, your main aspects that will help you understand that. I do have a couple additional articles that I uploaded for you. There was an article in Biblical Illustrator a couple of years ago by um, Robert... Um, So let's look at this, and then we'll transition, and we'll talk about covenant. So I hope you either have or brought your articles from um, Copan on that. <clears throat> then I want to talk about the Canaanites with you for the rest of our time together this morning. I do not have additional slides for what we're going to discuss. I, I hope some of our time is going to be discussion. I hope that you read the articles um, on the Canaanites. 
and Paul's quote from his book. Uh, the book is actually, is God a moral monster? Making sense of the Old Testament God. It's a really good book. He does not only discuss this issue, he discusses a lots of other issues that are confusing and complex in the Bible. And you really can't get too much better recommendations than, than what's on uh, the back cover. Uh, Christopher Wright, who also wrote uh, The God I Don't Understand, and has a couple chapters in this book on the Canaanites, basically said it's the book I wish I would have written. So that's, that's coming pretty high. If you don't know who Chris Wright is, he also wrote um, The Mission of God, I think is the title. Classic book on the mission of God. It's about this thick. It covers basically a theology of God's plan from Genesis to Revelation. Phenomenal book. Um, so, okay. With that being said, uh, I want to talk about the Canaanites, and I want to lead into it with uh, a little bit of information about God and warfare in the Bible. You can you could title this uh, Divine Warfare or the Divine Warrior Motif, and what I will do is I will upload a handout for you later this afternoon, basically my notes on this topic, and I'll put that on mine for you. It'll be a Word document. It's just like three or four pages. So pretty much anything I say will be on here. But the Divine Warrior uh, motif is something that re really changed how I viewed scripture. Pretty much every time your eyes are open to like some big concept in scripture, th that's what happens. So it, it changes how you view everything. This plays directly into our discussion of the covenant. If God made a covenant, who is going to have to make sure it actually comes to fruition? God's going to have to. Like, we already know enough of the story of Scripture that the man's going to mess it up every single time. Every time. The only man who's not going to mess it up is the man God, Jesus, right? So, every time it's going to get messed up. So, what does God have to do? God is going to have to make it happen if he wants it to happen. So, you see this with Abraham. God has to intervene all the time. Abraham lies. Yeah, she's my sister. I'm afraid I'm going to get killed, so, you know, I'm, I'm going to let you go ahead and take her. We're putting the whole promise in jeopardy here. Because God promised that through Abraham and Sarah they would have a kid. And now she's with some other king and could be ending up in his harem, right? So we just put the whole promise. I mean, we just put literally a whole world in jeopardy based on this move because he's afraid he's going to die. Because he's not trusting God. Because he's obviously not going to die because he doesn't even have a kid yet. And God promised he'd have a kid. You, know, you, you with me? Yeah. Right. So, so what does God do? He's the warrior. So all through scripture, listen to this. Exodus 15.3. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Numbers 10.35. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. When he says, Rise up, what's he saying? He's saying, Rise up and be that warrior. Lead the way. Conquer the place. Isaiah 42, 13. The Lord will march out like a mighty man. Like a warrior, he will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. Psalms 24, 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. He is mighty to save. How is he mighty to save? Because he's a warrior. Because he comes in and he fights. So when we think of 
Proverbs you know, 3, 5, and 6 that probably most of us know about trusting in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight, or he will direct your path, depending on the translation. Um, the, the imagery behind this is he's going to go before you and bulldoze the way. He's clearing the way for you so that as you obey him, the way will be clear. Kind of like, uh, I'm not a video gamer, but I'm old enough to know like original Mario Brothers, you know, um, and uh, or Super Mario. So, you know, when you get that invincible aspect and you can just bounce across everything and nothing's going to hurt you, right? Like, that, that's what we're, we're talking about. He goes before you. He bulldozes in front of you. So, one of the things you have to understand, this is crucial, is that all of life is spiritual. So, we're used to putting things in secular and, and sacred mode. You can't do that. Everything is spiritual with God. It's all interrelated. And so, uh, because of that, warfare is also spiritual. It's not just war. It's spiritual. There's a spiritual aspect to it. You could read uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9 if you want to understand why all of life is, is connected and there's no secular sacred divided. So listen to some of the things that God's people were supposed to do as they go to war. So we're talking about, to get our, our story in context, specifically the time period of Joshua. Okay, And you could go with Judges also. So the people have been freed. They're out of Egypt and the Exodus. They've been given the, the Ten Commandments. We're trying to move as a, as a nation to get into the, the Promised Land and eventually set up and become the nation that is supposed to be the light to the world so that the blessing of God can flow through Abraham to all the world. All right? So as we go there, the Canaanites are already there. There's already people in the land. So God gives instructions. Deuteronomy 20 for going to war. And here's what he says. First off, you got to prepare. Alright, you got you to be prepared. Leviticus 15, 16 to 18, and then 1 Samuel 13 indicates that sacrifices were offered before battle. They're offering sacrifices, they're preparing themselves spiritually, they're worshiping God. You have to be in the covenant. Why does Joshua 5 have the men circumcised before a battle. Okay? That is not how you prepare for a battle. Okay? You do not take out all your men and put them in the hospital for a few days or weeks, right? That, that's not what you do. Why does he do that? Because it's a spiritual aspect. That was the sign of the covenant. If you didn't have the sign of the covenant, it meant you were outside the covenant. And God's working through his covenant. So you've got to be in the covenant. Spiritual cleanliness is more important than military or physical strategy. Peace was offered, Deuteronomy 20, verse 10. When they went to war, they offered peace. They were praised before in 2 Chronicles 20, 20 um, through 30. The Ark of the Covenant was brought. Do you remember when they crossed the Jordan? What happened? When the toes of the priest carrying the Ark touched the Jordan River waters, what happened? It parts, right? Yes. Who was leading the way? The Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. God is going before them. God is going to win the victory. When they go around Jericho, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. They praised afterwards. Okay, Exodus 15, 1 to 21, and then I could list you a whole bunch. Okay, even after um, the Egyptian massacre in the, the Red Sea, Deborah breaks out in what? Song, right? Um, the plunder belongs to God because he won the victory. See, they didn't do it. God did it. So he gets the spoils of war. And then the band, which is what we'll talk about in a minute. 
So when God commands everything to be destroyed. So, you know, Saul didn't follow through on that. We're going to see in Joshua in a minute. And then God initiates uh, the war. So you don't just decide, I'm going to take somebody out. God says who and when and where. Now, the other thing that may answer that is if God is a warrior, what are his weapons? What, what does God use? Well, to make it really easy, God can use anything he created, right? And so he does. He uses the angels, which he created. He uses creation, which he created. Uh, they could be hailstones. They could be the sun. They could be whatever. Uh, and it's the angels also. So there's multiple passages in Scripture that talk about God and his heavenly host or his, his angels. Um, 2 Kings 6, Judges 5, Joshua 5. Creation. Uh, there's strong east wind for the locusts in Exodus 10.13. The strong east wind for the Red Sea in Exodus 14.21. The uh, huge hailstones in Joshua 10, 9 through 11. So all those are different aspects he uses. So God is leading it. God is telling them to go. And God uses these other aspects of his creation um, to fight the war. And then God's power in this situation has to be based on faithfulness. So what happened when the Israelites got superstitious with the Andrews? When they thought, oh, it's all good, we got the ark. No, it's not all good just because you got that ark. You got to be right with God or you're going to lose. And that happens in, in multiple occasions. If you compare Joshua 5 and Judges 7, 1 Samuel 17, etc., um, how was how David able to go and defeat Goliath when, when none of the soldiers could do it? Now, I mean, that's a whole, we could spend an hour and a half on that alone, but uh, part of the answer is that David was trusting in who? says, you know, you come at me with, with a sword and a spear and, and whatnot, but I come at you in the name of the Lord God. I come at you in the name of Yahweh, okay? You're standing there mocking him. I'm coming to you in the power of him, and he's going to take your head off, and that's what happens, right? And so, why is this important to understand as, as we talk about the Canaanites? Because we need to understand who's the warrior. God is the warrior, and God is the king, all right? So, we got, we got multiple things coming together here. The super and vassal things, God is the king. God's also the creator. God's also the creator of the covenant that he made with certain groups of people, which end goal is not just to bless Israel, end goal is to bless the whole world. So all of that is going on when we delve into the issue of the, the Canaanites. I'm not going to go through the rest of my notes on this warrior imagery stuff. But like I said, I'll upload it for you. But it continues all the way through the New Testament. Okay, Jesus demonstrates the same warrior ideas. He has control over the wind, the waves, all these different things. Um, and then God's final enemy, death, will, will be taken care of as well. So God is continuously active. Okay, he didn't, when, when Genesis says, you know, then he rested, it's not like God suddenly stopped um, and doesn't do any work anymore. God's been actively working. Jesus said it. My Father is working to this day, and so am I, right, because I do what he does. All right, so that's a little bit about the divine warrior motif. I will maybe upload this bibliography also, probably the most thorough book. Um, sorry for the title, but obviously something has struck um, my book. Maybe that's what the title is. But um, Trevor Longman, God is a Warrior, is a very uh, thorough treatment of that topic. So if warfare is divine, okay, now this is not unique just to Israel either. You'll see this in ancient Near Eastern context when you look at other things. 
that make them say that they're they're God's chosen to go or they're praying to their God. Um, except for in our Western world, since or prior to a little bit the Enlightenment era, where we divide everything out and we've got to analyze everything um, and break it all apart and remove the spiritual aspect. Everywhere else in the world, and always in the past, they're all interrelated. Right? Religion is part and parcel of life. So we come to God. And God says, hey, come here. I'm going to clean this. So a couple of things that we've got to understand. One is that there's a judgment coming to all nations, right? So you see this in, in Matthew, right? Matthew 24, 25. All the nations will, will be judged by God. So one of the things that I think we need to realize is that there's a tipping point. The way it works with, with nations, and, and I get this from how God says in Genesis 15, verse 16, the sin of the Amorites, okay, which is a Canaanite group of people, had not yet reached its limit. So what does that teach us? There's a limit, right? They haven't reached it, but there's a limit. So one of the things that's happening when God's people go down to Egypt is he had given the Canaanites time. Over 400 years, right? He's also, I think he's removing them from the Canaanites. <coughs> See, they weren't supposed to be mixing with them, but they are. They're moving to Egypt, and the Egyptians don't like shepherds. So they're not going to mix so much. Although Joseph does get a wife there, right? So they're not going to mix as much. In fact, they go to live where? In Goshen. And years later, hundreds of years later, what do we find? We find that generally speaking, there may have been exceptions to this, but generally speaking, the Israelites are living in Goshen as shepherds, and the Egyptians are elsewhere. When the plagues come, it's dark except for where? In Goshen, right? And so his people are in this primarily in this one place. They're not so much intermixing with the Egyptians like they were with the Canaanites. And so part of this is God is removing them to get them out of there, to get them messing up his plan again. Remember? Look what we saw here. Who's Esau married? Canaanites. Who's Judah married? Canaanites, right? Now, the irony in, in all that is that at the same time, we'll have to come back to this, who does he use in the midst of his plan? Canaan. And so, you remember Rahab, right? Canaan. So, the other side that we have to realize is that many times, God in the Old Testament was so vengeful and he was angry and he was, he was mean and he was genocidal, etc., etc. Um, well, first off, they're seeing through their own personal worldview. Right? They already don't believe, so they're not going to understand the scriptures. I'll talk more about that in my Old Testament class for wisdom. But So they don't, they don't understand, but on top of that, they're also picking and choosing. Because, what, is, what does God do with these Canaanites here? Rahab, Tamar, what does he do with them? Does he butcher them? So whatever um, analysis you end up at with this whole Canaanite issue, you've got to include that, that part also. Um, <coughs> so the Canaanites uh, were, were also a, a group of people that were
kids to their, their gods, etc. But those are just additional aspects that lead <laughs> to the point of, well, I'm just going to call it the point of no return eventually, that it's, it's the idea of kind of like a scale. So you keep sinning, and eventually my elbow hits this magic red button, you know, and that's the point of no return. And nobody knows where that is, though, right, except God. So, you know, I can't say, well, you know, your country just reached the point of no return. I, I don't know where that point of no return is. All I know is there is one, and there's a judgment. All right? And I would argue that uh, to some degree that's that's still in effect. I think, you know, I don't think in America it, it's excluded from anywhere. So, you know, God judges all the nations. Um, what is uh, one other comment, I guess, on the genocide thing? This is from his first. So he's got, he's got three chapters in his book. You, got, you had parts two and three. One of the other points that he makes in the, the first of the three chapters is the idea of genocide. And, and several scholars, Chris Wright talks about it also. Um, genocide is really not the best word to, to talk about what's going on. And so when people talk about it, we, we need to get away from that idea really. Because genocide is usually uh, race-based, hate-based, etc. And that's not what we're talking about in, in Genesis. We're talking, or in Joshua. We're talking about people's rebellion against God, their refusal to come under his uh, sovereignty, and the fact that he waited hundreds of years, we got 400 plus years just when his people are in Egypt, okay, waiting for them to repent, and they don't repent. Did they know about it? Well, yeah, they knew about it, because what does Rahab say in um, Joshua when the spies show up? We heard what you did, what your God did, okay, to the Egyptians, and we're scared to death about it. But, but are they bowing their knees? Are they surrendering? Are they? No. They're fighting still, except for her, right? And so she's the example of humility and submission and surrender and repentance and gets brought into the fold. Okay. With that intro, um, let's field some questions or discussion, etc. What are your thoughts on the two chapters that you read? It would have been chapter 16 and 17, part 2 and part 3 on the Canaanites. Yeah, it's not it's not in your textbook. It's there were handouts. They were uploaded.
who's he in war with? What's that? Yes, and okay, exactly. So we got you got two things that we've already learned. One is from the covenant with Abraham. Okay, so if you curse Abraham, then you're going to get the curses, right? Well, we can go further back. We can go back to Genesis three fifteen, right? With the curse laid upon the serpent and the idea that there's going to be a war between the seed of the offspring of the serpent and the seed of the offspring of the woman. We saw that when we saw Cain and Abel, right? Biologically, physically, they're they're both from Eve, but uh, spiritually speaking, Cain is the offspring of the serpent, right? Because that's who he follows. That's what we're talking about, right? So God's at war with anybody that is on the other side. He's at war with the serpent. So here here's what the reality is. Usually when I um, tell students, when I say students, I don't always mean college students. I mean I deal with middle school and high school and even elementary school students. So I tell them, like, if you're not with God, you're actually an enemy of God. Like, that's a little bit harsh for us to think about. I'm not an enemy of God. I don't hate God. No, God says that you are an enemy of his if you're not one of his children. Like, there's only two places that, that you line up. And the reason you're an enemy is because uh, you're in the wrong army. Because there's only two armies. Um, and we're all born in the wrong army. So we got to get drafted in the other one. Or adopted, right? And so that's the, that's the war that's going on. So one of the things that you can't understand with, um, with this whole stuff, and this is part of the problem with Dawkins and Hitchens and all these guys, is that you've got to know the, the Bible story. So really, before, before you can kind of figure out what's going on with the Canaanites, you've got to understand from, from Genesis to preferably Revelation, but at least like the Old Testament story on what's going on and what God's trying to accomplish and see how that fits in. So you've got to step back and look at the big picture. So if God's at war, and he's at war between um, the, the seed of the serpent and the woman, That's one of the things that are going on here. And his desire is to bless the whole world. And the way he chose to do that, okay, and he chose it because he's God, is it through the man. So we're at the accordion, okay? We want to bless the whole world, but we're going to zoom in to choose Abraham, and then through that, bless the whole world. Well, if you get in the way of that, there's a problem. Like, you're messing up my plan. You're in the way. And the irony is that I'm trying to bless you, and you're trying to kill me. Like, that's what's going on here. But... They're lost. They're blind. They, they don't understand this. Um, <coughs> Copen talks about the idea of uh, the exaggerated numbers. You guys been uh, exposed to this before? Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? I know a bunch of you didn't read it. Um, but uh, who, who, who knows what I'm talking about? Right, one. Okay. Two. So he talks about this idea of exaggerated numbers. And what he means by that is that when he says 500,000, they don't necessarily mean 500,000. These are the types of questions that, as, as Christians, um, can be troubling to us. I'm like, well, what do you mean? That's what the Bible says. That's what it means. And even, I mean, I've been studying for 20-plus years, but ancient Near Eastern stuff, probably not 20-plus years, but... Even with that, there's sometimes where I'll read stuff and I'll be like, eh, I don't know. And then you got to do more research and, and 
see if it really does fit or not. Because what you don't want to do is just take whatever the ancient Near Eastern culture does and just slap it on the Bible, right? Because there's similarities with life stories, we've looked at that. There's similarities with creation stories, we've looked at that. But that doesn't mean that they just took that story and dumped it into the Bible. In all of those, God is doing, um, God is using his writers to do something else. And there's a polemic saying that those gods aren't really real, and I'm the real God, and this is the real story. So we have to wrestle with that. And I think that's the word. We have to wrestle with it and see how we think this, this fits in with, with the scripture. So not everybody is going to hold to Caesar um, exaggeration. If you uh, Are you able to pull it up? Because you can, if you pull it up, you can follow with me at least. Says 16 on it. That's chapter 16 in the book. And there should have been, there should be a second one listed also. The way they're titled is is part two and, and part three uh, on the upload. So I'm on page 170 and 171 of the part two one, which is the chapter 16. So on page 170 is where he's talking about the exaggerated language. And Joshua using the language of conventional warfare rhetoric. So w what he's arguing here is that he's using the same language that you or I would use today. He says, so basically if, um, if you have a ball game you played last night and you say, we butchered it. So how can you say in one place we destroyed them all, 
and then a little bit later we find out they still seem to want to be destroyed. So that, that's the question we have to deal with. So this is where skepticism says, well, you got contradictions in your Bible. Well, I don't believe there's contradictions in the Bible because I, I believe it's, it's divine. So what's going on here? And so one, one of the uh, plausible responses is the language they're using. And this is where, honestly, again, first off, you got to wrestle with it and figure out where, where you land on it. I don't think you just take a scholar's word for it if they say something, okay? Like you, you got to dig into it, check what they say, research it, and wrestle with it. <coughs> but one of the problems we have is that Christians often make statements um, in ignorance. Uh, I mean, we're trying to be faithful and do our best, but they're often in ignorance about what the Bible says, and it really doesn't say that. Now, you can, you can take what I just said to the nth degree. So, you know, you, if God didn't create, it's all evolution. I mean, they're going to say the same thing I just said, right? I'm not understanding what the scripture says. This is why, again, you have to wrestle with it, okay? Um, tribe upon tribe failed to drive out the Canaanites in chapter 13, verse 13, 15, 63, etc. And then uh, Joshua tells seven of the tribes, how long will you put off entering to take possession of the land? Um, that God gave you in 18.3. So the point here is that they haven't been completely driven out, so there's got to be something else going on if we're going to take the scriptures you know, at face value to mean something. So he also told the Israelites that the process of driving out the Canaanites would be a gradual one, just as Deuteronomy 7.22 anticipated and Judges 2 uh, reaffirmed. So at the bottom of page 171, he mentions Kenneth Kitchen, which I mentioned earlier. He is an Egyptologist, um, and he's one of the top <coughs> scholars. He says this has misled many Old Testament scholars in their assessment of the book of Joshua. Some have concluded that the language of wholesale slaughter and total occupation, um, which didn't from all other indications actually take place, proves these accounts are falsehoods. This, this is where I think we as, as Christians, we have a responsibility. So people look at it and say, no, see, it didn't happen because... They're still there, and they're still here, and they're still here. So we can't trust the scriptures. Now, I have two points with that. One, I don't think we have to defend Joshua. Right? But I think we need to be a little bit smart and wise about what we say about the scriptures. So that's a teaching opportunity, in my opinion. <coughs> if they're uh, open to instruction, then we can have a conversation, and we can discuss the passage. We can maybe instruct them about some possible ways that it, it might um, be better to read it. If they're not open to it, well, I don't think we bother with it. I don't think there's any point in arguing with what may be a mocker or a scorner. Alright, so continuing on, um, I just want to touch on some, some aspects here, and then um, if you have questions, please ask them. Uh, I, I would prefer there's a little bit of a, a discussion on, on this topic. Uh, what they do sometimes in this course is actually, this is not a class-based lecture discussion. It's an entire forum conversation. I haven't mentioned that to any forums yet. Um, but that's just in the past they've done with this topic. So, at the end of the book, Joshua matter-of-factly assumes the continued existence of Canaanite peoples that could pose a threat to Israel. So how is that possible, again, if they've already been destroyed? So, and any questions on that portion of the question and argument, or plausible response? So basically, it's looking at the original document, which is the work, 
Yeah. And because it appears to be a contradiction, they have done some further research into those phrases and have decided that based on their use elsewhere, they don't literally mean destroy all figuratively, but they mean destroy them. I do really think that there's a lot of figurative language and idioms, um, which are even more difficult to figure out, in Scripture that we really don't have a clue on. This is the whole shared pool of knowledge and the lack of the shared pool of knowledge that I mentioned. And if when we don't have that shared pool of knowledge, I mean, we're, we're literally just twisting Scripture and misinterpreting it. We, we don't mean to, maybe, but we still are. Um, so, the band. So the idea about about the band, okay, the total destruction, that's what the band means. So why would God want these people totally destroyed? And I think I've already given you kind of the possible you know responses that we have. But the arguments are usually that this is a racist who is wiping out an entire group of people and that you know how could a, a God that's supposedly loving, you know, possibly do that? So I want to just remind you and point you back to the fact that the covenant really is crucial here, and the war with the thieves is, is critical to understanding what's going on here and how you interpret it. If you don't have those things in your back pocket to, to listen to this, okay, if that's not part of your worldview, then you're not going to get it right because you're missing what's going on here. You're not seeing what God is doing. You're looking at it from a different perspective. Um, and that's the same problem we have when we look at someone else's culture. If I look at something from outside the culture, then I'm seeing it from my culture. But you see it from inside your culture. You see it differently than I see it. So I'm going to misinterpret it unless I can talk with you and get some information and better understand your culture. In First uh, Samuel 15, there are more of these references about the destruction related to the Amalekites. Okay, who was supposed to kill the Amalekites? Anybody remember? Saul. Yeah, King Saul was supposed to wipe them out, right? And so, I don't know if you ever saw, um, what's the movie? Uh, One Night with the King. Okay, it's probably, I don't know, five or eight years old now. It's about Esther, but it doesn't start out with Esther. It starts out with what Saul was supposed to do with these Amalekites. He was supposed to wipe them all out, but he did not kill who? King Agag, right? And we get to the book of Esther, which is where your your memory has to play in, and Haman is an Agagite. Well, I-T-E at the end of a word just, just means descendants of, right? So if he is an Agagite, then that means Agagite. Okay, that's descended from. That means he's from Agag. Well, who is Agag? King Agag, the Amalekite, who Saul was supposed to wipe out a long time ago, and Haman, centuries later, is intent on doing what? Wiping out the Jews. That's why the book of Esther is in the Bible, right? Because, again, God's promise is in jeopardy. The people, the nation, is going to be wiped out. If they're wiped out, that's the end of the promise. And the promise is supposed to be not just for them, it's for the whole world, right? So, again, that's how these pieces uh, fit together. 
So in 1 Samuel 15, um, Saul was supposed to wipe them out, utterly destroy it, the word haram, and not spare the Amalekites. Put to death both man and woman, child and infant, oxen, sheep, camel, and donkey. Now this is where it gets even worse. Because now we're saying, really, you have to kill the women? You have to kill the children? And what's the deal with the animals? What are they going to do? So, <coughs> we know that Saul didn't obey, right? But what is, is the deal with these? Now, again, this is something that if this is your first exposure to it, you might be a little standoffish or I don't know that I'm going to accept that. And that's fine. you got, you got to wrestle with these things. So, Richard Hess is a, a well-known Old Testament scholar, and he's written quite a bit on, on this idea of the Canaanite question. But one of the things that he and others have researched and have uh, concluded is that if you look at where they did battle, so a couple of the places that they fought were uh, Jericho, right? And Ai, right? If you look at where they fought, one of the arguments is that these places were garrisons. They were like forts. These were not uh, cities. But they were forts on the main road that were there to control the territory and to keep peace and, and control of that area. And so um, if they're correct on this, what that means is that as they're going on this, this journey, what they're doing is they're taking over the strong points, the strongholds, right, that are in the land. And as you remove the strongholds, then you open up the land, right? Where, where are the rest of the people living? Well, the people are living in all these, these farm areas, right? Agriculture, agrarian society. So they're there. So when they go into Jericho, okay, so if this um, hypothesis is accurate, you go into Jericho and you wipe out Jericho, who's actually being wiped out? Soldiers are being wiped out. So, yes, yeah, but it says men, women, and, and children. Yes, so we're back to, again, the question, is this... This uh, stereotypical language that means take out everything. So if you take out everything, but you're dealing with a, a military you know, establishment, then we're actually not, even though it looks like it on the surface, the surface is reading, it looks like we're taking out women and children, but maybe we're not. Maybe they're just taking out the military. Um, so that occurs multiple times. Use the word all... Um, So, stereotypical uh, usage. That's on page 175 of that same article. And then he talks about Jericho, Ai, and the other Canaanite cities. This is what I just uh, talked about. He says at the bottom of 175, the average person isn't going to pick up on the fact that the stereotypical ancient Near Eastern language actually describes attacks on military forts or garrisons, not general populations that included women and children. There's no archaeological evidence of civilian populations at Jericho or Ai. So, they argue that they were, in fact, strongholds, military establishments. Now, what's, uh, where, what's Rahab doing in this? She's a woman, right? I mean, we do have a woman in the story, right? She's at Jericho, right? So she should have and would have been wiped out. So, if, if women, and something that you're saying, well, I don't know, maybe this is their typical, but maybe it also means wipe them out. Well, um, it would have included wiping out the woman, Rahab, if she hadn't converted, right? So what's she doing here? So if 
you look on page 177, okay, the right after Tavern Keeper, running a, a brothel. So they argue that uh, actually what was most likely uh, being run was more like a, a fortress tavern or hostel. And this is a, a place where if you're a foreigner or a visitor, this is where you would come to scope out who's there, get information, etc. So they're not going here because she has all these services available of women. It's because there's this other information there. Um, and he, he lists a parallel with Code of Hammurabi there in that first paragraph under Rahab the, the tavern keeper as well. So that type of stuff was, was uh, common, the reconnaissance missions, etc. And there's just there's no uh, sexual activity, you know, highlighted or mentioned. It's pretty clear the author is staying away from that in contrast to Samson when you get to that part. And that's the, the parallel that he makes here as well. So, the real deal then is the refusal to surrender to who? The Canaanites refuse to surrender to Yahweh. And he's given them hundreds of years and they still have refused. So now it's time for what? So that idea, that theology, actually fits in with the rest of the whole Bible. Everybody, even on an individual level, I mean, your time's up at some point, right? Once the baby dies, your time's up, right? Um, you're, you're fated, sealed, depending upon which uh, line you were in, right? So that's going on here as well. They could have repented. How do we know that? Well, she did. Rahab did. All right? So then he talks about the warfare methods on page 178 and, and 179, and I'm just going to refer you to my previous conversation about God's other warfare methods. The Midianites of Numbers 31 on page 179, they were a constant threat also. In Numbers 31, okay, there is a, a passage that deals with uh, Balaam and Balak, or Balak, and the, the women there that tried to uh, seduce the men of Israel, and again, you get this deceit war going on, try to seduce the men of Israel to get them off from God's plan for their lives. Additionally, you have Midianites plus Amalekites who, when the Israelites leave Egypt, go back to Canaan. They did not treat them well. Right? The Israelites only wanted safe passage through when, when they were coming back. They just wanted uh, to be able to go through with their people, uh, you know, drink and, and eat as they're going, but they were not out on a, you know, a rape and a pillage thing. They were not out trying to uh, war with everybody when they were coming out. And these people were uh, against them. So, the other thing is that I'm, he mentions at the bottom of 180, and I actually already mentioned this to you when I was talking about the divine warrior motif, that in, I think it's Deuteronomy 20, they are told to offer peace when they go into a war. This is an offer to surrender. Now, you might look at it and say, yeah, okay, so surrender or be killed. Well, kind of. Um, but they're also 
opportunity to not just be on the women's side, but to be on God's side. And again, the worldview is everything. Like, if you're not a believer, you look at that and it's, it's crap, it's, it's whatever. But if you're a believer, you understand that there's the, the war of the seas that's going on, and that the whole creation is messed up, and God is trying to restore it, then you realize that that's an offer of grace in the middle of the situation. Like, I'm giving you an opportunity to come, come to the side and, and, and be with us with what we're trying to do. summary, that's on 184. Alright, it's got a dozen or so bullet pointed things. So if you want to look at that, some main points for you to remember. Chapter 17, where on your upload is the killing of the Canaanites 3. It should have a 3 on it somewhere, alright? That's the next chapter. And here he talks about the massacre and the ethnic uh, cleansing aspect. Which, as I've, I've mentioned earlier to you, the, um, the use of the word genocide or genocidal language really immediately um, sets up a wrong idea about what's going on. Let me give you an example for that. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Holman Christian Standard Bible or not, but the ECSB, it's a great translation. They, uh, they decided when they translated, they were going to translate... Um, the word doulos as slave. Many other translations use servant or sometimes bond servant. Uh, it, it really, in the ancient context, I mean, it's really it's slave. Now, they actually were not completely consistent with it. They didn't always do it, but they, they did do it quite quite a lot. Well, they're revising the Holman Christian Standard, and now it's just going to be the Christian Standard Bible, CSB. It, it'll be out soon. Electronically, it's already out. But one of the things they decided to do is that because of our culture, they're changing that. So they're removing that. Because what happens when you say in American culture, the word slave? What's the immediate, immediate context that people immediately think of? The slavery that existed in America, right? And so what happens? Immediately, that colors your interpretation of what's being talked about in the scriptures. And, and we take that American slavery situation that happened that everybody that I've ever met or, or read would agree was atrocious and that gets shoved into the scripture and we read that as what was going on and that's not what was going on. They're two different things. And so they decided to remove that. So why am I bringing that up? Because genocide does the same thing as the Canaanite does. Genocide is about race. Genocide, if you look at, for instance, uh, Hotel Rwanda, great movie about the Rwandan genocide that took place. Almost a million people die in just a few days. Um, horrible, horrible um, race issues. Deep, long-standing hatred between one group of people and another group of people. And you can, you can have race hatred issues among anybody. Um, amongst uh, groups of whites amongst themselves different groups um, of African Americans or, or different groups. It doesn't matter where. You can have it anywhere. And it exists everywhere. And it's, it's demonic. And so we don't want to impose that onto what's going on. God is not trying to get rid of the Canaanites because of a certain race or a certain um, genocidal idea like that. 
Is that that the operator that was saying? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's completely different from that. Um talks here um, about blessing um, all the nations and the redeemed people, and then um, goes again to the aspect of uh, the non-combatants, etc. <coughs> Anybody have any additional questions? The three chapters in this book. Chapter 2 is, is the bulk of, of the material. And chapter 1, which you didn't get, but um, has a little bit, but I covered it in a different way than the other material. So, chapter 3 doesn't have all that much more to add to what we've already said. So, you have any questions, comments, discussions on, on the topic of the Canaanites? And wipe them all out and how it fits in? I don't want you to too easily accept it all. Like, None of these guys, by the way, think that this is an easy deal. Like, in, um, in Wright's book, I mean, his book is called The God I Don't Understand. And he just flat out says in there, it's like, I, I still don't really understand, like, exactly why. Like, I wish there was a better way type of thing, which is what he's saying. Um, it makes sense because it's just going to make the picture like um, an Indian flag as far as God raising waters to make a circle. It looks a lot quicker if you look at it. But to him, it, it's just easy to accept. Yeah, I definitely think that without that understanding, I mean, it really doesn't make much sense. Yeah. So, even with that understanding, um, it's definitely, I mean, if you were there watching it, I mean, I, I don't think any of us, and this is why it's uncomfortable to even even these guys, I don't think any of us would be entirely super comfortable with watching people, you know, get hacked. It's kind of like, um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you know the Memorial to the Panama Canal? People are worshiping what? To the what the Levites, wasn't it? Yeah. Strap on your swords. Yeah, on this side. Yeah. 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 yeah, on this side, get over here. Get on that side, get over there. And then he says, "Go kill them all." Now I don't know if you. I mean, I've thought about this. Like, that's family. That's brothers. That's. I, I don't want to make a parallel to the Civil War, really, but Civil War you had brother fighting brother, right? Father fighting son. Um, yeah, that was. Are you on the Lord's side? Go kill them. Uh, I mean, it's not it's not play kill. So there there is a reality um, to this. In these cases, it's a physical reality. It's the Canaanites, the example there in Exodus. But on a global, in the bigger picture, there there's a spiritual reality. Um, I guess if physical reality disturbs us, we should be more disturbed by the spiritual reality that there's an eternity situation that we're dealing with. Um, and so that should trip off our feet more. So we should be, that should be a motivation for us to be more focused about 
the Great Commission because uh, we don't want them physically dying and we don't want them eternally dying, you know? So honestly, there's, uh, there's a great deal of practicality to understanding theology. Some, some people think, you know, theology is just all pie in the sky stuff. No, when you understand theology, it changes how you live your life. So, you know, when you learn that 25,000 children are going to die today because they don't own a cup of rice, um, you didn't know that, sorry, I just threw you there. Um, now you got to do something about it. You know? How can you stand by as a Christian and have 25,000 kids die because they don't own a cup of rice? And so, you know, you know what, what do you do about it? Well, I, I don't know. Okay, you can get money, you can pray, you can... There's this place... Uh, I can't remember now because I stopped doing it. Uh, there's a place where you can actually go and click every single day, and someone else will buy the cup of rice for you. Um, so if you can't do anything, you can, you can at least pray for someone else to buy the rice. Um, what's that place called? I don't know. Yeah. But, um, and I also uh, had something to with that. So, yeah, the theology, it has practical implications for how we live our lives. You know, when, when I look at our, our world and our culture here, I look here at Orlando, and um, there's a lot of lost people. There's an awful lot of people that say they're believers, but um, you can say say all you want. I, I don't see it being lived out. You know, we have uh, major issues. Orlando is the most negative city in the world. In the world. Yeah, 56 million people a year come to Orlando. That's just for business. We also have um, the highest homeless population in the country. We also have the most unfriendly pedestrian um, culture in the country. Um, so we have, a, you know, there's some good things about Orlando, you know. Um, so I would, diversity and culture, and I love that we're cultured and all that stuff. We also have a lot of conflict. You know? So when you when you have diversity, you often sometimes have conflict as well. So we have conflict, and the church needs to be um, at the front and work towards going out. Uh, the church needs to be at the front, unified as agents of reconciliation. Isn't that what, what Paul calls us? Paul, isn't that what Paul calls us to? Right? He says we said that we are the agents of reconciliation. Right? We're ambassadors of God for reconciliation, and in a sense. I don't want to push that too much, but when when Joshua's going out to battle and they're preparing themselves spiritually and they're making sure that they're they're right with God spiritually, they're they're checking with God. Do we go here? Do we go here? You know how many times did David he's praying for God? Do I do I attack these people? Yes, I'll give them to you. No, not today. You know, so the um, the idea that. Joshua is going out there and um, based on Deuteronomy 20 and some other passages, um, potentially, he's offering them peace first. You know, he, he's offering them a hand, uh, not just we're going to take you out. You know? And at the same time, though, there is that judgment of God that's going to be prepared against them as well. You know, hardly. Sorry about that. Um, so anyways, I, I guess we'll, we'll leave it with that. There's a lot of tough issues to wrestle with in Scripture, and when you look at background issues, uh, you can find all sorts of other issues that are tough to wrestle with. Uh, but that's where 
about. I do, um, I do recommend a book, um, and I do recommend, uh, Trevor Longman's book. Of course, almost all of this, and you can use it yourself in your articles as well, but God is in the Warrior. This will really change your, your view of God and, and, and demonstrate another whole aspect to what we're talking about today, really, about how God is a, is a war and fights for his people. And, um, you know, we sing songs in church probably and mention stuff like that, but Psalms talk about it, you know. Um, you know, God goes before us. Uh, Talmud, I think my mom said Talmud, you know, God of angel armies. Um, that's all coming straight out of this stuff, that God is a warrior um, for his people and for his name, primarily for his name's sake, in the book of Exodus. Um, he wants his name known so that his people would be part of his promised plan. Um, let me pray. Father, you've called us to great things, and I pray that as we wrestle through these, these passages of Scripture, God, that we would be uh, engaged in it. I pray that it would draw us closer to you, Lord. Help us to see uh, you for who you are. Help us to see people the way you see them, God. Uh, help us not to be a consensus, God. Help us to be uh, open to the people you bring into our lives. And being that we're currently here in Orlando, that uh, we would be able to be a, a conduit, a pipeline to people literally from all across the world that come here. Pray that uh, you strengthen and encourage our students today, God, as they go about the rest of the day, and you would uh, use all of us to bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. He actually says, but he wish he was there. So he thinks that nothing will do.